According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, that's what we're going to cover. We'll see how far we get with it, see how long my voice holds out. As I saw on the website that uh, the top five worst cities for allergies today, Austin is number one on the list. And then uh, San Antonio and three others, uh, Orlando and Tampa, I think, or something like that. Anyway, then I looked at the list for the five best cities, and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I can move to Valentine, Nebraska. (laughs) Well, no, I can't move to Valentine, Nebraska, but it's a good city for allergies as far as today goes. All right, well, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to lead us in the truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for the blessings we have in living in the Word of God, Father. We thank you for the inner man being renewed day by day, even while the outer man perishes. Father, we thank you for the, um, the newness of life that is our estate in Christ, as Christ lives in us. Father, all of these are grace blessings. We want to understand them for what they are. We want to live them out. We want to display them to this lost and dying world. So I pray that uh, tonight you would equip us to see these things, that you would teach us what we need to understand. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we can start with some questions tonight. I had one by email, so I'll start with that one, and then we'll take other ones that uh, we may have here from the audience. Um, (coughs) Some of you might remember Gaitha. She visited us a a couple times and uh, lives out near Marble Falls. (coughs) excuse me Um, but she had a question about Genesis 10 and why is it (coughs) that languages are mentioned in Genesis 10 like in verse 5 (coughs) well after prayer meeting I thought I was going to make it So we have mention of languages, the sons of Japheth. From these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. And there's a question there related to that, not only in verse 5, but there's uh, two other verses in the chapter where languages are mentioned for Japheth, for Ham, and for Shem. <coughs> and it seems to be out of order because the Tower of Babel story doesn't come until the next chapter, until Genesis chapter 11. And so that seems to be an issue where folks would ask, um, how come languages are mentioned in chapter 10 when the division of languages don't happen until chapter 11? And it's a good question. 
Uh, it's uh, pretty easy to answer too when you realize that chapter 10 is a huge panorama of history, that it spans hundreds of years, that it spans multiple generations through uh, the descendants of Noah. And you're even told partway down when you're looking at the descendants of, uh, of Shem <coughs> in verse 25 there, I'm talking about Peleg. And it says uh, his, he was named Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. So there we can, we can recognize the, the, the Babel division and separation of the peoples and, and the creation of the languages and the things there. So um, also to recognize that both chapter 10 and chapter 11, the whole book of Genesis was written long after these events took place. And so it's with hindsight going back, talking about tribes and languages and lands <coughs> and, uh, and the issues there. All right, so that's the, that's the short answer. And I apologize, I was not coughing like this at prayer meeting. This is, uh, this is something new. Do we have other questions, live questions, questions here from the floor? We'll get Bill Kelly. Two real quick questions. Um, the Nephilim, were they able to be saved? <laughs> um, I don't know, and I would say no, because uh, they're not in Adam, and not being in Adam without human fathers, uh, then they cannot be redeemed by the second Adam. And so that's the issue there, which is why when Jesus went and descended into Hades and made his victorious proclamation, there were more issues involved there than is normally thought about. But given they had fallen angel fathers and human mothers, they were not uh, fully human, and they were not uh, Adamic. And since they were not subject to the death of the first Adam, they were not savable by the, the life of the second Adam. Okay. Um, my second question is in uh, Genesis 26, uh, verses 18, a couple of verses there. Talk about the quarrels over the wells. Uh-huh. Um, well, we see that Isaac dug two wells, and then the herdsmen came and quarreled over it, and he moved, and then he dug the third well, and they pretty much well left him alone. Can we kind of look at that as a logistical grace aspect? In what way? Well, in the in, in the way that he dug the first well, people came and argued with him over it, so he moved, made, dug a second well, they came, griped and complained. He left, dug a third well, and they pretty much well left him alone. So it's kind of like he was where God wanted him to be at with that third well. I guess, yeah, I mean, you could look at it like that. I don't know that the, the scripture spells it out that way or... Or that any, uh, I don't think this episode is, is uh, used in the New Testament or, or referred back to in any way elsewhere in the, in, the, in the scriptures. I do think, though, I mean, it's consistent with how Jesus taught in terms of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. And, and uh, so, yeah, if they're going to quarrel over a well, then just go dig another one and, and don't quarrel over it. Uh, we, could, we could probably use Isaac as a good illustration for, for uh, long-suffering and grace and and an attitude there. Sure. All right. Thank you. Okay. <coughs> All right. Other questions tonight? What else is on your mind? <clears throat> Anything? Going once, going twice. All right.
Well, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. <clears throat> I want to pick up uh, where we left off in uh, verse 8 here of Philippians 4. And uh, really, we've had, there's seven imperatives in this paragraph from verse 1 down to verse 9. And, uh, and uh, when we get to the sixth and the seventh imperatives, we're dealing with these very issues. <coughs> the sixth and seventh imperative center on the thinking and the actions of rapture ready, standing firm, joy and crown kindred, which is what we all want to be. Every one of us, we want to be rapture ready. Every one of us, we want to be standing firm. Every one of us, whether we want to be or not, we're supposed to be joy and crown kindred. And so uh, as, a, as a title for the royal family of God or the body of Christ, church age saints, uh, we want to be rapture ready, standing firm, joy and crown kindred. And to be that, we have these imperatives. And uh, number six and seven center on thinking and action. So in verse eight, we talk about where your mind is going to dwell. Dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Uh, the verb is logizomai, to logically think through, to, to reckon on these things, to compute, if you will. And really, in the Greek world, it was logizomai that sets us apart from the animals, that humanity was the, uh, the uh, we were the beings that have logical, rational thought, that animals are alive and animals have instinct, but animals do not have logic. They do not have the higher order logic that we have in terms of our rationalization and, and, uh, and rational thinking. And so where is our mind supposed to dwell? Where are we supposed to live? And I think everything that we, we study in terms of the doctrine of abiding, when we talk about, uh, and of course in that study the verb is meno, we talk about abiding, the application is where do you live? Not where you hang out occasionally, or not where do you visit every two or three years, where do you live? Where are you settled? Where do you reside? What is your residency? Because where you live is where the bulk of your, uh, your attention is going to be focused, your devotion, your, your, uh, uh, your treasure is going to be stored there. We have other principles that apply for how we abide in Christ, how we abide in, in the Word of God, how the Word of God abides in us. And uh, I think that same aspect is applied here in the thinking capacity of let your mind dwell on these things, of, of dwell intellectually, dwell mentally, dwell uh, in, your, in your spiritual focus on these items. We have six adjectives, we have two nouns, and, uh, and it's going to be a little tedious to work our way through, but I think it's worthwhile to consider what are the, all these about? What are all these about? And are the two on top of the six, or are the two, so do we really have eight that we have to focus on? Or, <clears throat> which is not the case, we have six, and then two that summarize those six is what we have. Because the two that summarize the six give us guidelines for how to add additional items to the six. Those six things are not, are not an exhaustive list. Now, there can be other things that you want to let your mind dwell on, so long as they fall under the broad principles of uh, whatever is lovely and whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. And so that's what we're centering on here. <clears throat> when the New American Standard translates it as dwell on, the, uh, there's a footnote in some New American Standard text, not all, uh, that says ponder. 
think on, meditate on these things. The King James has think on. New King James has meditate on. The imperative is the verb logizomai, to credit, to consider, to regard, or to reckon. Reckon these things. Impute these things. So think about all the reckoning we need to do. That's what this is about. Reckon these things. (coughs) And so (coughs) when it comes to where do we spend our, our, uh, our energies in thinking about? What are we thinking about all day long? Are we thinking about sports? Are we thinking about money? Are we speak, thinking about politics? Are we thinking about allergy season? I mean, what is it that we're thinking about from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed? You know, and, and you can't wait to fall asleep because then you get at least you know, eight hours of, of not thinking about this thing you've been thinking about all day long. Okay, Well, <clears throat> we have a list here of what we're supposed to be thinking on. And how we not only think about them, but we credit them, we reckon them, we impute them. And that becomes, uh, I think, a significant application as well. So uh, Kenneth Wiest in his Amplified New Testament said, these things make the subject of careful reflection. These things make the subject of careful reflection. (coughs) So, um, and we'll go item by item through here, whatever is... Uh, true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure. We're going to go through this whole list, all right? As long as my voice holds up and as long as you put up with the terrible sounding voice tonight. But this is what we're supposed to do, to think on these things, to credit these things, to reckon these things. And and I think, and I tried to explain this a couple weeks ago, it's it's useful to remember that our very salvation is defined by this right this verb right here. The idea of logizomai is essential to who we are and why we're not going to hell when we die. Because God has logizomai our sins to Jesus' account. And God has logizomai Jesus' righteousness to our account. Okay? And so that's the very verb for, for reckoning or considering, for uh, imputing in these things here as we deal with it. And so God reckoned that my sins were assigned to Jesus and he judged him on the cross. And then God reckoned that Jesus' righteousness was my righteousness. And so I'm going to go to heaven. I'm justified in his sight. I can stand before him right now in the Holy of Holies because he reckoned it that way. And so when we are told to reckon certain things, we need to obey and reckon certain things. So even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a reckoning that we're commanded to do. And we have other applications as well. Now here's something. We are to reckon whatever is true. Whatsoever things are true. And we're to reckon those things. And we're to reckon them as true. And so what do we want to reckon as true? If it's blatantly false, do I want to reckon it as true? Well, what would that accomplish? But if it is true, then I have the blessing of reckoning it as true. I have the blessing of agreeing with God in His reckoning of it as true. And, uh, and this then becomes our blessing to, to be fellow reckoners with God. And, and we'll have more on that too, I think, as we talk about these things. Six adjectives stipulate appropriate mental dwelling. The things that our mind dwells on. 
And, uh, and, and this, to me, is, is a joy. And maybe, you know, you're all better than I am at this, but I, I'm, I'm a terrible daydreamer. I, I am just horrible. And I can, I can waste hours. I can absolutely, my mind can just, whether I'm driving down the road or, or whatever I'm doing, I can just be daydreaming about all kinds of stuff, you know, from my army days to, uh, you know, things in the past to whatever, to superheroes, to books, to Roman history or whatever. And I can find that, wow, two hours just went by and what have I been doing? You know, I've been thinking about this, this silly thing that, that really, you know, um, why am I even thinking about that anymore, Okay. And yet we have a privilege to be able to focus our mind on these things, the items that are listed here, and, and what they represent in totality. Because they represent Christ, and they represent the Word of God, and they represent the body of Christ. And so in those capacities, I want to be reckoning these things with respect to one another. And so I want my mind to dwell there. And we've got some other idioms, you know, in modern English, and in, you know, we have colloquial expressions like get your mind out of the gutter you know your mind you know we we can put our bodies in the gutter but we know what it means when our mind is in the gutter and that's what we're talking about where is your mind you have a one-track mind you're only thinking about one thing right a one-track mind well okay um so we have similar expressions today in modern english and the bible is telling us that uh, that our mind is supposed to be living somewhere that our mind is supposed to be dwelling consistently, continuously. It is a present active imperative. So continuously, presently, all day, every day, uh, be thinking on these, on these six adjectives here. So they're neuter plurals identifying a variety of whatsoever things that are presently characterized by the following adjectives. So whatsoever presently is true. Uh, whatsoever presently is honorable. Whatsoever presently is right. And uh, these are the things that we're focusing on. All right. So six of them. (coughs) Starting with true. And I think we covered this one, but just in case we'll remind ourselves on this. Matthew 22, 16, John 7, 18, Romans 3, 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 8. These are the uses of aletheis that will highlight for us these aspects. Aletheis is the uh, adjective form of aletheia. Uh, Aletheia is the noun that means truth. Um, there's other cognate forms in terms of verbs and whatnot, adverbs. But, uh, but this is the adjective true. And, uh, and it's not a postmodern ad- a definition of true either. All right, We define truth the way the Bible defines truth. The truth is that which is, that which conforms to reality. All right, There is objective truth. We're not like Pontius Pilate and we say, well, there's no such thing as truth. Or there are no absolutes. Or all that ridiculous insanity that that takes language away from any anchor of of rational thought. There is truth. And truth is what conforms to reality. If you you pursue it on a philosophical basis, it's the correspondence uh, theory of truth. That which corresponds to reality. And so we can take it from there and not be too worked up about it. <clears throat> but Matthew twenty two sixteen, the critics were, were praising Jesus about being true and about um, holding to that standard. And they said, teacher, we know that you are truthful and you teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. And 
they didn't really mean it, but they were they were flattering him, and 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 actually they were kind of buttering him up to lead him into a trap. Um, but set that aside for the moment. Just recognize the statement is factually correct. He is a teacher of truth, and he's not going to compromise the truth because the truth is what it is. And so if you if you deny what the truth is, or if you substitute a lie for the truth, then you're a liar and you're serving Satan. You're not serving God the Father. And so truth is very important. It's important for his ministry, important for our ministry, whatever is true. And so this here, just identifying with the truth, constantly reckoning the truth, constantly considering the truth is huge. Because we are living in a, in a generation now that's lost and adrift. We're living in, among a culture now that can't even figure out boys and girls, that can't even figure out you know, that you're a boy, but if you want to be a girl, if you think you're a girl, well then you can be a girl. No, you can't be a girl. You are what you are. And, uh, and, and truth is truth. And we've got we to stand for that. You know, they say that uh, in, in, in this whole fantasy they've created, you know, they think global warming is true. They, and, and they have all these other things they think are true, transgender and all this other stuff. And, and the more they add to the insanity, it just, it just piles on. It's piled higher and deeper. So um, I think it's useful for us. Whatever is true, dwell on these things. Reckon on these things. There is a God. There is absolute truth. His word is revealed truth. This is the standard of righteousness for our life. And we dwell on these things, whatever is true. John seven eighteen, another use of Alethes. <coughs> and uh, here in this feast of uh, booths, when his brothers wanted to make a big splash, and he didn't, he went up. He got. He arrived late and kind of snuck in. But in the midst of the feast, he went into the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews were astonished in John seven fifteen, saying, "How has this man become learned, having never been educated?" You know, which was not true. But since he didn't go to their schools, that he might as well have been uneducated. And so Jesus answered them and said, "My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me." If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. This is a powerful protection for hungry believers. If you are humble and you want to know the truth, God will make sure that you hear the truth and that you have the Holy Spirit in you. He indwells you. He's the spirit of truth. And if you're sitting there and there's some guy putting forth a bunch of lies, if you honestly want the truth and if you want to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer, but a doer of the word, then you will hear the truth. And uh, this is the promise here. If you are willing to do His will, He will know of the teaching. He who speaks from Himself seeks His own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent Him, He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. And a very important principle there. I think any pulpit committee that's uh, testing out candidates and trying to see who the next pastor is, they got to find out, is he speaking of himself or is he speaking from the Father? Is he teaching the Word of God as, as God is delivering it? Or does he have his own agenda and his own self-promotion going on? Romans 3, 4. Romans 3, 4. <coughs> and of course, uh, the advantage that the Jew has, the benefit of circumcision, great in every respect, 
first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I mean, think about it for Old Testament history. Uh, the Jewish people were the people. I mean, they had the scriptures. Uh, Romans could still get saved, but they had to go find out about salvation from Jewish people and Jewish scriptures. And uh, so there it is. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And for much of Israel's history, they were in rebellion. They were operating outside of faith, and they were operating in total uh, unbelief. That does not nullify the faithfulness of God. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar, as it is written. And so we can understand this truth. God is true. Jesus is true. His word is true. Uh, These are the things that we focus on when we reckon these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Finally, 2 Corinthians 6, 8. Here's a Oh, this is one of the examples I was thinking of the other day. Second Corinthians 6, 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Paul really likes that in nothing, in everything contrast. Like being anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanks. Here he says, give no cause for offense in anything so that in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. And then he, he details what those things are. When you get down through this list, you're going to notice it's going to include the word of truth, in verse 7, and the power of God, the weapons of righteousness. Verse 8 says, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. And so now we realize, wow, that's us. That's the body of Christ. That's fellow believers as we're walking in the light, as we're living in the Word of God, as we're loving one another and serving one another. And so we have objects of our, of our uh, reckoning. We have objects of our legizomai considering whereby uh, whatever is true is going to include God, it's going to include Jesus, it's going to include the Word of God, and it's going to include one another our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow believers at Austin Bible Church, that we regard one another uh, in truth and love, as, as we see here, but in truth. So whatever is true, whatever is truthful, and, uh, and the standards there. All right, so whatever is true. Secondly, we identify whatever is uh, honorable. <coughs> whatever is honorable. The adjective is semnos, S-E-M-N-O-S, semnos. Translated either dignified or honorable. There's only four uses. It's not a common adjective. Um, 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 11, Titus 2, 2. It's actually one of the requirements for being an elder in a local church. It's one of the uh, character traits for uh, leadership in a local church. The idea of dignified and honorable. Here too, we have to stop and recognize this is God's standard, not the world's standard. This is how God, what God would honor. Because our world honors an awful lot of horrible things. Our world will celebrate a lot of shameful things. And, uh, and they glory in their shame, if you will. Um, but in, uh, in God's standard, what is honorable, what is worthy of praise? And that, that comes down to, to the summary statement that gets made. Um, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But semnos for dignified or honorable. 
So whatever is aletheis, whatever is semnos. 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 11. <coughs> I think the flip side of all of these is uh, when you identify something that's not true, flush it. <laughs> Quit dwelling on it. Quit thinking about it. It's not worth your time. And if it's not honorable, get rid of it. Why are you, why are you thinking about that for? It's not dignified. It's not honorable. All right, 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons likewise. So we have overseers in verses 2 through 7. And then we have deacons likewise must be men of semnos, men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding with the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Because they're going to be set up as examples. They're going to be examples for the younger believers in the church, and the younger men in the church, deaconesses to the younger women in the church. And so the idea of dignified or honorable. Same thing for the women in verse 11. <clears throat> for the deaconesses. A deaconess must likewise be semnos. Dignified. Not malicious. I think it's semna. It's a feminine ending for the, for the uh, women, but it's the same adjective. Not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So the idea of dignified or honorable. Likewise in Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, that's semnos, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So whatever is dignified, whatever is honorable. And and. I think every one of these adjectives explains itself. Every one of these items, if we're honest about it, we're able to tell yes or no. <laughs> you know, We're able to, to look at something and say, that's true or no, that's false. That's honorable or no, that's not honorable. That's dishonorable. And, and it really comes down to that. And if it's not honorable, why am I dwelling on it? Why is my mind going there? Why am I thinking about it? I shouldn't be. <clears throat> Thirdly, it's dikaios. And we know dikaios because of dikaiosune, righteousness. We know dikaios, whatever is righteous, whatever is right. Now in Philippians it's rendered right, but it can easily be rendered righteousness. Whatever is aletheis, whatever is semnos, whatever is dikaios. Whatever is righteous or right, if it's dikaios, dwell on these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. I think righteous is a perfectly acceptable translation in that verse. <clears throat> As it's used in 79 places throughout the New Testament. I think many, many more times it's rendered righteous instead of right. I think here is another place where it's perfectly valid to render it as righteous. <coughs> because really in, in God's standard righteous or right is that which conforms to his, his standard. That's what DK is about and dikaios and dikaiosune. God is the, is the canon. He's the, he's the measuring stick. And if you measure up to God's standard, you're righteous. If you don't measure up to God's standard, as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then you're unrighteous. And I think that's clear as well. Our thinking is supposed to be centered on that which is righteous. And if it's not righteous, why are we thinking about it? <laughs> 
<coughs> Acts 3.14. <clears throat> but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And here's Peter preaching it. These guys crucified the Christ, and he calls them the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the holy and the dikaios one. So whatever is dikaios, dwell on these things. Well, Put Jesus at the top of your list. He's the number one righteous one in the scriptures. That's Jesus. Romans 3.26. What Jesus Christ did on the cross... Of course, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's why the cross was public, the burial was public, the resurrection had so many witnesses, God was putting these things on display to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over and the sins previously committed. For the right demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now to be just is dikaios, that he would be just, that he would be righteous, he would be right. It is only right for him. That's why he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He would, he would be unjust to not forgive us when we confess our sins. <coughs> Again, just like with Acts 3.14, Romans 3.26 is spotlighting Jesus as being the righteous one. That He is righteous. He is right. And so because He is, He can be the justifier of, uh, of us. 2 Timothy 4.8 I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the dikaios kretes, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This is supposed to be a centerpiece of our thinking, is this righteous standard. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, the dikaios for the odikaios, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus is the righteous one. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Dikaios. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. All of these are descriptions of Jesus. So when we're told to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, we're being told six times over, be occupied with Christ. <laughs> okay? Be reckoning all things in, it, in their connection to Jesus Christ. And this, man, this gets powerful. This helps us with respect to the saved and the lost. Because what can we do then? We just say, look, you're in Christ, you're not in Christ. We're orienting everything to Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, in all these things. Verse 29 of the same chapter. <coughs> Verse 28 says, Now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. So we have the righteousness of Christ, we also have the righteousness of the body of Christ, the fellow saints, brothers and sisters in the church. And so we're dwelling on, on us as, as righteous saints, producers of righteousness, dwelling in Christ. And uh, don't, uh, uh, you know, don't harbor mental attitude sin against your brother as um, that dirty rascal who took the last peanut butter cookie at the potluck and then you spend the next three days grumbling over this r dirty rascal that took the last peanut butter cookie, okay? Or the guy that took your parking spot, or the guy that offended you when he said a thoughtless comment or whatever. Stop and dwell on the whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous. And, and think of that person that you're harboring the mental attitude sin against, and just flush on that garbage and start thinking about that person in these terms of what is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is, is righteous, if, and, uh, and these things we're looking at. <coughs> because yes, Jesus is the righteous one, but where are we? We're in Christ, and we're producing this righteousness as well. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. And so say, Father, I love my brother, he produces right, he practices righteousness. He's born of you, and you're praying for him and not grumbling against him. Uh, for whatever else. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And so if you're going to practice dikaiosune, you are dikaios, just as Jesus is dikaios. Okay? And so there it is. Two more. <coughs> Hagnos. Hagnos. When we think about purity, this is not the normal term for purity. Uh, we have terms for holiness, terms that speak of sanctification and being set apart. Uh, normally when we think of this, we're thinking more of a spiritual priestly sanctification, a, a, a spiritual component. I think here, this purity is more of, a, of um, the defilements of sin and, and keeping free from that. More of an innocence type of purity. It's used uh, eight times in the New Testament, including James 3.17 and 1 John 3.3. 3. If it's pure, if it's innocent, we should dwell on these things. The minute we start getting crafty, we've, we've left the realm of pure. <laughs> okay, Pure and innocent. Our thinking is to be pure and innocent. We're not blending our thinking with ulterior motives or with other, uh, other motivations. All right. Uh, James. 
the wisdom, okay, in contrast with the wisdom from below, which is earthly, natural, demonic. That's a horrible worldly wisdom. We don't want any part of that. Where, where uh, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. That's how the world operates, okay? We want no part of that. The wisdom from above is first hagnos. It's first pure. That's the primary description of God's wisdom. It's first pure. There's no guilt, there's no shame when you're walking in God's wisdom. You're not uh, trying to cover your tracks when you're walking in God's wisdom. You have no regrets when you're walking in God's wisdom. Uh, I said it this morning, I say it again tonight, I've never known any believer, I don't think it's possible, there is no believer that's ever looked back over a life spent in doctrine and regretted spending so much time in the Word of God. They've never looked back and said, wow, I've just been saturated with doctrine for all these years, I really regret that. Okay? But I know all kinds of people, and you do too, that have all kinds of regrets for the other branch of wisdom there, the worldly wisdom, and, uh, and, and time that they spent thinking about the things that are not pure, that are not honorable, that are not true, that are not righteous, and those kind of things. So the wisdom from above is first hagnos, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And so we want to be thinking these pure thoughts. 1 John 3, 3. <coughs> Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Jesus is pure. I think we can defend all of these in those four categories. God Himself, Jesus specifically, the Word of God, we know the Word of God is pure, and fellow believers as we're walking in the light, loving one another, abiding in Christ. We have four primary targets for our mental occupation. Whatever is lovely. <laughs> Whatever is lovely. And this, this, this is a fun one, and it's so short. Because Philippians 4, 8 is the only place it shows up, so there you have it. But think about it. This is the verse, this is the concept that everybody abuses when they're perverting agape love. Okay? Because this is not agapao, this is not agape, this is not any compound of agape, it's a compound of phileo, it's, it's uh, prosphilase is the term. Prosphilase. Whatever is towards uh, fellowship or whatever is towards rapport. Uh, phileo love is rapport love. It's an attraction love. It's, it's something that is lovely. And so you find something lovely and it's because it's lovable. And this then becomes pretty special for us because it's our privilege to have this kind of rapport love for one another. And then this is what, as I say, I think folks that don't understand agape try to inject this into agape. And you can't do that. God so loved the world. Why? Not because the world was lovable. Christ so loved the church. Why? Not because the church was lovable. Husbands, love your wives. Not because they're lovable. And keep on loving them when they're not lovable. See, that's the nature of unconditional integrity love. Agape love does not take into account the merit of the object. Agape love is expressed because of the merit of the giver of that love. It's grounded in the integrity of the lover. 
not in the, in the lovability of the object. That's why we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because our enemies are not lovable. And we, we're not commanded to have rapport for them. We're not commanded to be you know, buddy-buddy friends with them. See, the, the phileo is the, is the rapport love. And ideally we have both. But if we can't pass the agape test, I don't think we're going to pass the phileo test either when it comes right down to it. But here it is, prosphilase. It is lovely. And our mind is to dwell on the things that are lovely. And there's nothing wrong with identifying things that are lovely and identifying things that are attractive. It's not a sin to identify attractiveness. All right? It's only a sin is when you pervert that attractiveness and, uh, and uh, take it places it shouldn't be. All right? Because attractiveness is attractiveness. And it's, it's right and it's good to identify what's attractive. Well, if it's lovely... All right, and it causes you then, again, the verb is logizomai, and I think that's important. We're crediting these things. We're crediting these things as God credits these things. And so we're not, we're not looking at something that's lovely and then abusing it by saying it's, it's for me, because it's, maybe it's not for me, it's somebody else's, okay? But I can reckon it the way God reckons it. And I can, I can, dwell on these things as God dwells on these things. Same thing with true and dignified and right and pure and lovely. So whatever is lovely. okay. And I think in a lot of ways too it's useful for us. We identify what's lovely. We identify what's attractive. And uh, I tell you, if that doesn't uh, it should wake us up to say uh, this is something that's going to become a a target. This is something that the the adversary is going to attack. The, the adversary, if uh, you know, if you've got a lovely marriage, you think the devil wants to tear that apart. You think if you have a, an attractive daughter, the devil wants to get there too. You know, whatever is lovely, um, evil, evil is evil. Evil will just mar and destroy, for the sake of marring and destroying beauty, because in some ways they hate themselves and their own ugliness. Satan's got to disguise himself as an angel of light. He used to be beautiful. I think he has a tremendous hatred for God's beauty. And a tremendous hatred for the, the, for the phileo fellowship and, and rapport love that, that we're provided in the Lord. So anyway, whatever is lovely, yeah, dwell on those things. Dwell on why they're lovely. And it helps you to orient to the Word of God. Alright. So whatever is lovely. And whatever is commendable. Whatever is commendable. Euphemos. <clears throat> commendable. Um, New American Standard has of good repute. Well, okay, I don't mind that, but I prefer commendable. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable commendable, okay? Saying something good about somebody. Saying something good about anything. What is commendable? As your mother and my mother, probably every mother in the universe has ever said to their child, if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all, right? And so say something nice. Find something to commend. 
And uh, there's got to be something to commend. And if you can't think of something nice to say about your sister, then you're not going to eat dinner tonight. So, okay. So you find something nice to say about your sister so you can have dinner that night. And so we learn how to say nice things. And, and this has to be in a genuine way uh, where we truly are commending. We truly are uh, commending one another to God and to the, the grace of His Word. We're commending one another uh, in in uh, the the good things that we're saying about one another, euphemos is like eulogy. It's like eulogy, and uh, you know why is it we save all our best eulogies for the funeral? That we have uh, we should be eulogizing all the time if we are going to say good things to one another, if we're going to have good reports for one another, and uh, and euphemisms are interesting as well. These are sanctified euphemisms, and uh, if you know what a euphemism is, okay. <clears throat> you know, we have euphemisms as as a matter of um, social niceties, okay? So we have euphemisms because um, to just say it in a blunt and ugly way is, is, is vulgar or it's inappropriate or it's not appreciated. And so we find euphemisms, euphemistic ways to express certain things, Okay? So I gotta go see a man about a horse, okay? Whatever. We have these euphemisms. We have these expressions. I never could figure that one out. It took me a long time to figure that one out. We have a lot of other euphemisms, okay, for for lots of stuff, bodily functions and other things. We have euphemisms, and what a euphemism is essentially, and then I don't know. The, the Greeks didn't invent this. I'm sure people before the Greeks did the same thing. But they really got good at it. And the Greeks uh, <coughs> would find a way to say something that didn't sound as terrible as it could have been otherwise. That's, that's euphemos. Okay? So what is commendable? What is commendable? And so um, used to be they would do this on television broadcast too and you know, there'd be a movie that would use a profanity, use a bad word, and then they would dub it over for the broadcast television uh, presentation of that film, you know, and because uh, they were coming up with a, a euphemism to, you know, to, or sometimes to bowdlerize a, a text or something like that <clears throat> to clean it up. The Scrabble Dictionary, by the way, this has happened thoroughly for school Scrabble. So the uh, if you buy that dictionary in the Barnes and Noble, it's the official Scrabble Players Dictionary. It is the uh, it is the euphemistic clean dictionary. It doesn't have uh, the bad words and the the things they don't want to spoil the innocent children in the in the school with those words. Anyway, whatever is commendable, whatever is commendable, and so as we reckon these things. We want to reckon these things as God has reckoned these things. Because God has legizomized every single one of these. And we want to legizomize in exactly the same way. And so um, we're not going to try to create our own righteous standard. We're going to impute righteousness the way God imputes righteousness. We're going to, uh, we're going to assign innocence and purity the way God assigns innocence and purity. We're going to assign lovely the way God assigns lovely. We're going to assign commendable the way God assigns commendable. And we have plenty of examples. There's all kinds of examples in the, throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, when God speaks commendably of somebody and He spells it out there. Usually it centers on their faithfulness, on their dedication to the Word of God, on their, on their love for, for Him or their love for His, his children. 
There's ways that they're commended. When the good kings, when they're commended, they're said, they're like David, their father. That they followed him with their whole heart like David, their father, had done. That's commendable. And so we have different ways to commend one another. All right. Now, all six of these uh, are, are the adjectival descriptions for, for what our mind can dwell on. Then we have two nouns that are set apart. Two nouns that are set apart. And they're not, they're not, they're not expressed with a whatsoever is. They're expressed with if. If. And it's assumed to be true if there is any excellence. And if there is anything worthy of praise. So these two then become summary statements of the previous six. <clears throat> Again, six uh, adjectives stipulated appropriate mental dwelling. Neuter plurals identify a variety of whatsoever things that are presently characterized by the following adjectives. Now, those six are now summarized by these two. Two nouns summarize the above adjectives. I mean, when you look at that list of six, all of them, all of them fall under whatever is, um, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise. All of them can be described as excellent and praiseworthy uh, as far as that goes, all right? So true, that could be described as excellent or praiseworthy. Uh, honorable can be summarized as excellent or praiseworthy, and so forth. These two nouns are summarizing the above adjectives, and they establish two basic principles for adding to the open-ended list. That's the whole point. It's an open-ended list. We're, we're not tracked by just those six items. We can think about additional items as well beyond what's true and right and lovely. And maybe we have uh, something that's, um, pick a different adjective, loyal. Whatever is loyal, okay? And I think, wow, you know, I have a, I have a loyal wife. I have a loyal uh, deacons, I have loyal uh, friends. Loyalty is, 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 a, is a positive thing. Loyalty is spoken of in Scripture highly. But it's not one of those six, so I guess I can't think about it. <laughs> no, okay. You can think about it. Because, okay, it's not one of those six, but these other nouns are giving us parameters, two basic principles for adding to that open-ended list. If there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise. And so, since clearly, by God's definition in, in the biblical standard, loyalty would be considered something that has excellence and something that is worthy of praise. I mean, think about it. God himself says, well done, good and faithful servant. God himself gives, considers that excellent and worthy of praise. So, on the basis of these additional nouns, we recognize that we have guidelines and parameters for uh, adding to that open-ended list. And that would include excellence and praiseworthiness. <coughs> excellence and praiseworthiness. <coughs> All right. You know what? I think I'm going to save this for Sunday. I'm just, uh, that's a lot of verses to look at. And we've got five minutes. And I think my voice is done. So, okay, we'll pick up on, on this Sunday morning. Uh, arete, like Camp Arete. When, remember when Jeff Phipps was here and talking to us about Camp Arete and what it is they're trying to instill upon doctrinal teenagers 
from coast to coast. We're taking them to Camparete so they can teach them about excellence, teach them about biblical excellence with doctrinal pastors and, and, uh, and peers from other churches. And then Epinos for worthy of praise. All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for allergy seasons, <laughs> Father. Uh, every time allergy season comes, I look forward to the new heavens and the new earth and, uh, and the resurrection body. So, Father, it is uh, it's your grace and your glory that we thank you for all your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.